Hello, I'm Caitlin DeAngelis, and this is Wargraves Gardeners, a podcast about the staff of the Imperial Wargraves Commission in the Second World War. Today's episode is about the Haler family. Henry Haler was a cemetery gardener in Aubers in northern France, where he lived with his wife Sarah and their two sons, Ernest and Marcel. In 1940, the family escaped from France. And in 2019, I sat down to talk with Marcel Haler, who was 11 years old during the 1940 evacuation. From the beginning of this research, I knew that I wanted to talk with the families of the first-generation Wargraves gardeners whenever they were willing to talk with me. Of course, research in the archives was essential to my project, but those official records were just not enough. Until the last few years, the Wargraves Commission didn't collect material about the wage earning staff, and they destroyed a lot of what they did have. So I knew I needed to reach out to families to hear their stories and see photos and whatever else they wanted to share with me. So in this episode, instead of using quotations from archival documents, I'm going to intersperse some clips of my interview with Marcel. A warning, when I did this interview, it was right at the beginning of my research and I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I certainly never planned to make a podcast, so the audio quality is not great. I mostly just meant to use this conversation as background to understanding what life was like for the gardener's families. So I did a really amateur job of recording it, and also the conversation was all over the place chronologically and thematically. So instead of just playing this interview straight through, I'm going to break it up into short bits and explain some of the context. Marcel and his family also shared many other documents with me, including notes that he wrote several decades ago and lots of family photos that help explain those stories and tie them together. There's one other important thing to note. This conversation took place in December 2019. At the time, we didn't know what was about to happen. I thought maybe I'd get a chance to visit Marcel again, or maybe share some of my findings with him. But unfortunately, like so many people of his generation, Marcel Haler died in 2020. I spend a lot of time thinking about commemoration, and especially about how governments choose who to remember in a public sort of way, with ceremonies and funding and full honors, and who they don't. I've read a lot of books about grief after the First World War, and also about the Civil War in the U.S. So many historians have written about this great change that happened in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the U.S. and the U.K., where governments started taking on this responsibility for commemorating individual soldiers by name on a massive scale. Part of that was about responding to a real crisis in the national experience. In her book about death in the Civil War, which is called This Republic of Suffering, the historian Drew Gilpin Faust writes a lot about the concept of the good death— this Victorian-era idea about what made a satisfying end to a life, where the dying person was surrounded by loved ones who heard their last words and cared for their remains. And the war, the Civil War, but the same could be said of the First World War, really disrupted those expectations. Hundreds of thousands of people died in these wars, and millions of their loved ones were profoundly shocked and disturbed in part because they couldn't mourn properly. 
They couldn't bury their dead at home. They couldn't perform their rituals or support one another in the ways that were meaningful to them. And so in both the U.S. and the U.K. after these wars, the governments recognized that that mass societal grief was something powerful. So they devoted enormous, really tremendous resources to shaping that grief and giving it meaning and direction. They spent money on memorials and made promises that the nation would not forget the ordinary people who died for it. Now, they didn't always live up to that promise. But that investment in collective remembrance did shape a lot of national symbols and rituals in ways that continue to be politically and emotionally powerful today. And I think we haven't really grappled with the pandemic in terms of that public remembrance piece. It seems like there's not going to be much of a commemoration effort at the national level, either in the UK or in the US. Obviously, a war and a pandemic are different. But I think it's important to acknowledge that I wrote this book and did this research in the midst of a calamity that killed so many of the remaining survivors of this generation that experienced the Second World War. And that shaped how I thought about the work. I don't have a public policy proposal or anything, but I just think that it needed to be said that public commemoration involves making choices about money and politics and who matters to the community. And I know that Marcel Haler was deeply loved by his family, who took such good care of him and was so proud of him. And I'm just sorry that so many people were separated from their loved ones and that they weren't able to grieve in the way they needed to. And it feels like there's a push to forget about that. So in a podcast that's about remembrance, I wanted to acknowledge that. So glad that I got to meet you, and thank you so much for meeting with me. Yeah, yeah. it's been nice meeting you. I've been working on a research project about the gardeners in France yeah. and their families, and your father was a gardener with the yeah. War Graves Commission. Yeah, that's right, yeah, and Aubert's. He was mm-hmm. at Aubert's and another little cemetery further down the road. So only had six graves in it. Mm-hmm. He used to look after that, yeah. And you lived there when you were a child. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Eleven years when we left, mm-hmm. when the Germans come. Yeah. Marcel Haler was born in 1929 in France. He showed me lots of pictures of his childhood, himself and his brother Ernie playing in the village or posing in a photo studio, or in one where he's about three years old, he's riding on the back of a lion sculpture near the Menin Gate. And there are lots of photos of the family visiting cemeteries and memorials like the Menin Gate and VC Corner. And actually, Marcel told me all about how his father uh, attended the dedication of the Canadian Memorial at Vimy Ridge in 1936, and how that was a real honor for him to be part of that ceremony. Like most of the gardener's children, Marcel grew up playing on the old battlefields around his house and around the cemeteries where his father worked. 
Did you find, when you were a child, did you find a lot of shells and things around? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Obviously, our house, there was uh, one gun, uh, what was in the town centre, there was one gun, one machine gun post, another gun, another machine gun post, another gun, another machine gun post, all the way down the field. Mm-hmm. Like that. So we used to we used to go over and look for ammunition. Mm-hmm. Not dead ammunition, good ammunition. <laughs> We'd bring it back into the garage, break them open, <laughs> spread them across the floor, and then set it alight. <laughs> Like the cordite? Yeah, all the cordite, yeah. (laughs) My brother always had more than me. (laughs) That game, cracking open ammunition to make firecrackers, was a really popular pastime for kids who grew up on these battlefields. A lot of them mention that when they talk about their childhoods. Obviously, it was incredibly dangerous. And in fact, one Wargraves gardener's child lost a hand in an explosion from live ammunition that he picked up. Another gardener's child, um, a kid named Joseph Hillier, was so traumatized by some of the things that he saw when he was growing up near Aris that actually later um, in the Second World War, he got noncombatant status because he testified that he could never kill anyone after what he had seen in his childhood. He describes being a small child and falling through into an unmarked grave in Achicourt Wood, and other experiences that were so disturbing that he actually asked the Conscientious Objectors Tribunal to let him testify behind closed doors, which they did, and they agreed that he had proved his case and they gave him noncombatant status. But Marcel Haler didn't suffer any injuries playing in the old trenches. He did mention that there was a German pillbox near his house that the kids always ran past because they were afraid of it. And they picked up lots of things on the battlefields, including German helmets that they played with. Marcel's brother, Ernie, was named after his father's younger brother, Ernest Haler, who died in the First World War. Both Ernest and Henry Haler were drivers in the Royal Field Artillery, and they both served in Mesopotamia. Ernest died, and Henry survived and became a Wargraves gardener. That's actually something that I've noticed while I'm researching these gardeners, is that quite a few of them are older brothers who lost younger brothers in the war. That's true of both of the gardeners that I write about extensively in my book, Ben Leach and Bob Armstrong. They're both eldest sons who lost brothers. Ben Leach actually lost two younger brothers, and Bob Armstrong lost one. And it's possible that that is just a coincidence that just the people that I've looked into are are older brothers. I certainly have not researched the families of all of the Wargraves gardeners well enough to know if it's a statistically significant pattern. But it is definitely something that I have noticed. I'm not really comfortable psychoanalyzing historical people. That's not my field of expertise. And the evidence that we have is really partial. But I do think it's valid to think about possible motivations, both the things that the gardeners acknowledged explicitly and also other things that may have predisposed them to want to do this kind of memory work. I don't have a definitive argument there, but it's something that I have noticed and could probably bear some additional research. 
it's also important to take seriously the stories that people tell about why they did things. And in Henry Haler's case, he had a very specific story about why he joined the Wargraves Commission. I really regret that I didn't get the full story on tape in Marcel's own words. But the gist of it is that after the First World War, Henry Haler went back home. He was from Hastings. And he worked on a large estate as a gardener. He was one of the men who was a professional gardener. And one day, the lady of the house asked him to drive her into Hastings to do some shopping, which he did. He took the car and drove her into town. And when they got back, her husband accused Henry Haler of taking liberties with his wife. And one thing led to another, and there was a fist fight. And Henry ended up punching his employer. And after that, he was looking for a job that was maybe a little bit far away from Hastings, and so he decided to take a job with the Wargraves Commission. Henry Haler worked at several different cemeteries. Actually, Marcel has a photo of him next to one of the big trucks that the Wargraves Commission used to use in the earliest years to send groups of gardeners out to do horticultural work at scattered sites in places where there wasn't uh, living accommodation. And there are these big, tall trucks that have stencils on the side that says, Traveling Gardening Party. And so there's a picture of Henry and about 10 other gardeners around this truck getting ready to go out for a week or so on one of these jobs. Eventually, the Wargraves Commission had Henry settle down in Aubert's and take care of the Aubert's Ridge Cemetery. And that was probably because he was from East Sussex. The Aubert's Ridge battlefield had a lot of significance to people from East Sussex because the Royal Sussex Regiment took tremendous casualties at the Battle of Aubert's Ridge in 1915. And even though Henry Haler was not in that battle. He was artilleryman serving in Mesopotamia. But he was from East Sussex. And one of the things that the Wargraves Commission did was they did try to place gardeners in cemeteries where when people came to visit, they would be greeted by a familiar accent. That meant that they tried to make sure that there was a Canadian gardener at Cabaret Rouge or an Australian gardener at villers Bretonneux. And they didn't always match people regionally to cemeteries, but they did sometimes. And so for someone who had lost a son in the Royal Sussex Regiment at Aubert's, when they came to the cemetery, they would meet Henry Haler, who was from Hastings and was a familiar voice from home. Did your dad ever bring you and your brother to the cemetery that he took care of? Oh, yeah. Yeah? We was always there. We used to play there, yeah. help him with his mowing, yeah. pulling his mower up, the bank at the side, he'd throw a rope over, and on the mower, you'd walk along the bank and he'd push the mower around mm-hmm. while you held the mower up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he enjoy his work, working in the cemetery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He used to work hard on them. He used to go on his hands and knees weeding. Mm-hmm. Bloody great symmetry. And he'd be down there weeding with a knife. Can't the weeds um In the fall of 1939, Marcel was 10 years old. And he remembered 
British soldiers returning to Aubert's as part of the British Expeditionary Force. They weren't really expecting to find a child who spoke English in this little village in rural France. So this is a story from the notes that he wrote several years ago, so I'm just going to read it about the day that British soldiers came to the village. After school, I would take a shortcut home through the Vimel farm. As I was passing through the farmyard, a Bren gun carrier turned into the yard and stopped. I shouted out in French, what is that? We went over to look at it, and the driver shouted out, you kids bugger off. And I said, don't you swear at me, speaking in English. I said, I'll tell my dad. He said, where do you live? I replied, down the road. I ran home about a quarter of a mile and told mom what had happened. That evening after dinner, dad went up to the main road to Lille to search for the light battery that had just arrived. He introduced himself. They were very pleased to see someone that could speak English and French. There were other language-related stories about this time when the British troops were in Aubert's. I apologize, the beginning of this one is a little garbled. I cut it off with my bad recording. But Marcel's telling a story about how the British troops told French women that kiss my ass was a greeting that they should use. The old soldiers told the French that um, kiss my ass was a great end, you know. (laughs) So anyway, my dad goes in a cafe and she never attempted to speak English to him before. She said... uh, Kiss my ass. He said, Viens, brasse mon cuirci. Now she knew what it meant. Come and embrace my ass as well. She went off in the kitchen, never see her for a week. <laughs> yeah, but last time I went over, that's exactly what a bloke did. We sitting in a, Ernie and I have been playing bar billiards, and uh, which we was always doing and having a drink, and this soldier come in, grabbed a chair, pulled it up at the counter, looked at this girl, straight in the face, said, kiss my ass. She belted him. <laughs> I can see her now. Knocked off from here to that bloody lamp. <laughs> and he looked around. I said, she knows what it means. He said, where you come from? I said, I live here. <laughs> yeah. Was he surprised that you spoke English? Yeah, he was surprised. Before long, many of the soldiers who were stationed in the area knew about the Haler family and would sometimes ask Marcel or Ernie to help them with small tasks like shopping or ordering food. So this is a story about one day when Marcel went out to get a haircut and a soldier asked him for some help. I went for a haircut, met this soldier... He said, come, Marcel, I'm hungry, I want some food. So can you order me some food? So I ordered him uh, egg and chips, but she had to do the chips, peel the potatoes and all the rest of him. Took a long time. So I had a few beers. Anyway, I had um, these few beers. I had mum's bike to go and get air car. So anyway... I said, I've got to go, I've got to go. So I come out of the pub, the cafe, got on man's bike, fell over, <laughs> picked it up, got round the road, Rue de la Pluie, 
fell over the bike again. <laughs> Bloody bike, I kicked it and got down the road, fell over three times. When I got down the bottom of the road, Manus turned the corner, I fell off again. Ernie come out, said to Mum, he's drunk, Mum, he's drunk. And then when he said that, the elves went flat. <laughs> That's when I hit the ground. <laughs> yeah. The British soldiers were in Aubert's for the duration of the Phony War, the period between September 1939 and the invasion of France in May 1940. And during those months, they became friendly with the Haler family. They would sometimes stop by just to speak English. Marcel's mother, Sarah, was not French. She was English, and so she would have them over for tea. Or sometimes after a funeral, they would go back to the Haler's home. A couple of soldiers did die in Aubert's before the invasion. One was a dispatch rider who died in an accident, and another died of disease. And Henry Haler buried them in Aubert's Ridge Cemetery. And then after the funeral, the soldiers would come back to the house for tea and a little reception. Another thing that the soldiers did with the Haler family was tour around the First World War battlefields. There wasn't a lot of entertainment in Aubert's, so the soldiers asked Henry Haler to take them around to the local sites. Henry was one of the very, very few Wargraves gardeners who owned a car. He had recently bought a 1935 four-seater Peugeot, and he used it to take British soldiers on tours of all of the battlefields and memorials around there, Fromel, Vimy Ridge, Notre Dame de Lorette, and they would pay him in petrol. And that actually became very important for the family's ability to evacuate during the invasion. Anyway, they serviced the car, so he took them out to different cemeteries, Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Vimy Ridge. Mm-hmm. This one, yeah. It's always out of Vimy Ridge. So they wanted to see the monuments yeah. too. Yeah, they wanted to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. For, carriage was full of petrol. Mm-hmm. They used to supply us with petrol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why we managed to get away. We didn't want any petrol. Mm-hmm. Carriage was full of it. We filled the car right up yeah. when we went. We waited. The, we kept waiting and waiting. Didn't get no orders to go. So they decided we'd go over to Lavanti, to the Squires' and stay there the night. That was Saturday night. And we move off Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved off Sunday morning early. We'd loaded it up and we hit the road. Yeah, for Dunkirk, of course, because that's where everybody was going. I followed up on this because one of the questions I was really interested in was how gardeners made this decision about whether to try to leave or not. The Imperial Wargraves Commission ordered all of the gardeners to stay at work in their cemeteries unless they received an explicit order to evacuate. And I was interested in how different families made a decision about whether to obey those orders or not. Because in France, those orders never came. Most civilian authorities never issued evacuation orders, and the Wargraves Commission did not give permission for gardeners to withdraw, even as the battle was approaching. 
So I asked Marcel about that, and he was he was a child, so he didn't really know exactly what his parents were thinking, but he did talk a little bit about his father conferring with his friend, Bill Squires, who he mentioned, who was another gardener who lived in Levanti, and then also talking with the British soldiers who were stationed nearby and asking them if things really were as bad as they seemed. But in the end, Henry Haler was really reluctant to leave Aubert's because he had been ordered to stay and he feared that he would lose his job and also his pension if he left without orders. Dad had army orders saying not to desert his post, otherwise he would lose his pension. Mm-hmm. The trouble was the office got blown in the street, so they never sent them a message. They stayed and stayed and stayed to the last minute. It was lucky you had the car. Yeah, it was lucky we had the car. Yeah, Dad decided to buy him and not come home on leave. Mm -hmm. Used to come home to Hastings every year. He decided to buy the car and he bought the car. It was the last handmade French car, Peugeot, mm-hmm. yeah, read. So eight, model number eight. And, uh, yeah, when we went to buy him, went in the garage, the guy said, this is the last, told me, this is the last handmade car of the Peugeot group. Yeah. So um, it was a bloody good car too. Yeah. Yeah. So you all went into the car, so that's... Seven people in, in the... Yeah, Mum, Iris, Mrs. Squires, Ernie on a stool, mm-hmm. me in the front seat between Mr. Squires and Dad. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. What was it like when you were leaving Aubert's? Well, what we did, we didn't go on the main road. Dad said, it'd be crowded out. We won't get anywhere. we got to go all the back streets. So we took us, well... Two, I think it was two and a half days to travel 200 miles. Wow. Yeah. yeah. In and out, in and out, crossing the main road, down the country lane. Yeah. We got there in the end. Yeah. Were there a lot of, of, of refugees on the road? Oh, thousands. Horses, cars, people carrying clothes on top of their heads. Oh, absolutely. Just like you see on the television. Yeah. Just like that, yeah. We went down to Dunkirk, right. but they wouldn't let us on the beach. Right. Mm. Soldier in the street said, down you, go that way, go to Boulogne. Mm. They stopped us from getting on the beach. It's all being bombed yeah. everywhere. You had to dive out the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 What were the what were the troops doing? You said a soldier told you to not not to go that way. There was a roadblock. No. Yeah. What were the troops doing? They were going down the beach. Yeah. Down to Dunkirk. Yeah. To evacuate to Dunkirk. Yeah. That was just for soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All soldiers, and we were moved off. Stood in the road at Dunkirk, and he said. Down the road you go, mate. Mm. We uh, used to fly a little um, Union Jack, mm-hmm. and he recognised the Peugeot car. Mm-hmm. We'd take the Union Jack off in case we come across some Germans. But we did come across Germans. Yeah. 
one night. We was um, on the road and we were stopped back streets and a barrier across the road pulled up. This German, I knew he was a German, he had a parachute regiment helmet on, mm-hmm. poked his head through the window of the door. Nobody spoke. Nobody said a word. He looked all round and found what he's taught, signalled for the barrier to go up. Barrier went up. We went through. And Mr. Squire said, now what we do the other end? They lift the barrier up and let us straight through. So we went straight through the German line <laughs> in and out. So just to clarify, the Hailers left Aubert's on the night of Saturday, May 18th, 1940. And first they went to the nearby village of Levante to pick up their friends, the Squires, Mr. and Mrs. Squires, and their daughter Iris, who was 13. And so the seven of them get into the car and they go off, they get turned away from Dunkirk and have to go toward Boulogne. They don't reach Boulogne until May 21st. And so this is very late in the invasion. By May 20th, the Germans had already sliced all the way across the Somme, all the way to the English Channel, and cut off that northern part of France and Belgium away from the rest of France, trapping the British Expeditionary Force and a large portion of the French army in that pocket. So they're cut off. It's May 21st. The Germans are really closing in on Calais and Boulogne and the other ports. For the Wargrave staff, this is really a crucial moment. Most of them are trapped in this pocket, and there's not a lot of ways out anymore. Back on May 10th, there had been four Wargraves offices, one in Ypres, one in Arras, one in Albert, and one near Boulogne in Wimereau. And by May 21st, the three branch offices had all been abandoned. Only the head office in Wimereau was still operating. So many of the gardeners and their families went there. Over 100 people gathered in this office. Panic was starting to set in. And they still had orders from Sir Fabian Ware that men should not leave France. Sir Fabian Ware issued those orders on May 20th. So these are the current orders. Men are not to leave France. And, in fact, nobody was leaving because they couldn't find a ship. They called around to everyone they possibly could. All of the officers, all of the people who were trapped there, were doing whatever they could to find a ship. And, miraculously, on May 21st, they found a Red Cross hospital ship called St. Julian that was docked in Boulogne. And St. Julian was loading wounded, but they agreed to take the Wargrave's women and children at first. They didn't agree to take the men. So women and children got onto the hospital ship. But the ship was still loading wounded for hours and hours, and it may actually have moved away from the dock and come back. That's slightly unclear. But in the end, late in the afternoon, they did eventually let Wargrave's men on the ship. So about 120 Wargrave civilians escaped on St. Julian on May 21st, not very long before Boulogne fell, and the Hailers were among them. Got down there, got this Red Cross ship, and uh, they were only letting women and children on board. Mm-hmm. The men had to stay in France. Oh, Mum cried her eyes out. I said, it'll be all right. I know it'll be all right. Anyway, we set the sea for an hour and a half, 
two hours, and then we docked. Mum's bad sailor, my brother, he climbed a bloody mast. He said, go and see where we are in England. He come rushing back down and said, Mum, we're right back where we started from. <laughs> <laughs> then that dad and Mr Squires got on the boat. Mm -hmm. They didn't know it was their boat. Uh-huh. Um, and he come running downstairs. He said, I just see Mr. Squires going the door upstairs. He said, if you see him, your dad's with him. Go and find him. So he goes up, opens the door. There's dad with a bloody great rice pudding, <laughs> sucking in his rice pudding. He said, yeah, I thought he was in England. No, he said, it's the same boat. <laughs> so we all got off together. Hmm. The Hailers got back to England safely. When I asked Marcel whether they got any help from anyone, the thing he remembered most vividly was that someone in the Salvation Army told them that they weren't real refugees because they spoke English and that the Salvation Army was only offering help to French refugees. Marcel's mother, Sarah, was really upset about that because she had worked for the Salvation Army before her marriage, and she felt that they did not help her and her children when they really needed it. But the Haler family got back to Hastings, and they had family there, so they got back on their feet all right. When you came back to Hastings, did your father get a job? No. No, he didn't get a job. He was walking around... We were living in, uh, up by the park. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he come up some Mary's Terrace and the windows were blown in. Mm. So we saw water running out the front door. So he broke his way in. Policeman coming by. Oh, he said, where are you going? So I'm going to turn the water off. So he went in, in the toilet, turned the water off, was running out the front door, blown a hole in the roof. And it was pouring down the stairs. Mm. Uh, the policeman said, well, at least you know where the water tap is. You'll have to come down to the station with me. He went down to the police station, met this Inspector Taps, nice man. And um, he got him a job with the engineers. Mm. And he worked with them for a long time yeah. until well, he had to find a job. Yeah, he went... Um, Centre-Lave turning in the old town. Mm -hmm. They taught him centre-Lave turning, and then they put him in the Woolwich Arsenal. Mm. Yeah. He was up there where the blitz was on. When the gardeners landed in England, they did get some help from the Imperial Wargraves Commission. Most of them were paid their wages for May and June 1940, and the commission also offered them what they called concessions, which basically meant that if a gardener got a new job and that job paid less than their usual wages, the commission would guarantee that they would pay the difference, at least for a little while. That stopped in 1941. As I've mentioned before, the commission's position was that all of the gardener's contracts had been canceled by the invasion, but they still wanted to maintain good relationships with the gardeners because they hoped that in the future they would be able to return to France and Belgium and they wanted to be able to send people back on a moment's notice. So they wanted to keep the gardeners in what they called a state of readiness. 
In practice, the commission didn't actually pay very much in concession money because there were plenty of good-paying jobs in war industries. As Marcel mentioned, Henry Haler did some engineering work in Hastings for a while, but then he retrained as a lathe operator and went up to London to work at Woolwich Arsenal. The commission didn't offer concession pay to men who they thought were not actively looking for work. There's one gardener who they mentioned specifically in the records who they're a little indignant because he doesn't register for the labor exchange until August, so two months after he returns from France. There was not a whole lot of grace extended for the fact that these people had just been through something pretty traumatic. They had lost their homes. They had been shot at. Some of them were injured. Some were actually pretty badly injured. One gardener lost a hand in an air raid during the evacuation. And some of them had been separated from their wives and children who were still in France. Not to mention their neighbors, their in-laws, and the other half of the Wargrave staff. Families like the Hailers and the Squires made it out by the skin of their teeth. But they had lots of friends who didn't. And they didn't get a lot of time to recover from that before the commission expected them to be back at some sort of full-time work. Back in Aubert's, the Haler family's house was ransacked pretty much as soon as they left. In fact, a British soldier who was passing through the village on his way to Dunkirk stayed in the house, and he noticed papers on the floor, including Ernie Haler's birth certificate. And on the birth certificate, it said that his father had been born in St. Leonard's-on-Sea. So the soldier picked up the birth certificate and put it in his pocket, and he brought it with him through Dunkirk uh, back to the UK. And when he got home, he sent a postcard. He only had a partial name and a partial address, but he sent a postcard, hoping that it would find someone named Haler around Hastings. The postcard says, June 6, 1940. In a house near Aubert's, which was in the area of recent operations, and was your house, I found lying about a birth certificate of Ernest Henry Edward Haler. I picked it up and have it. We'll send it if you let me know address. The signature on the card is pretty worn away, so it's hard to read. I think it might say A more, but I can't be sure about that. In any case, it worked The card was delivered, and Ernie eventually got his birth certificate back. Another thing that was happening in Aubert's in June 1940 was that Adolf Hitler arrived for a visit. During the First World War, Hitler had served at Aubert's Ridge and was in that area for quite a long time. He actually made two trips to First World War sites in June 1940. The first one was while the battle was still going on. On June 1st and 2nd, Hitler took a car tour through Belgium and northern France. Famously, he visited Langemark German Cemetery, but he also visited the Menin Gate and the Canadian Memorial at Vimy Ridge and Notre Dame de Lorette, and sort of a lot of those highlight memorials that are part of a lot of tourist itineraries even today. There are famous photos of Hitler posing in front of the memorial at Vimy Ridge, which were actually published in American newspapers as propaganda, because the Canadians and the British newspapers were saying that the Nazis had purposefully destroyed 
that memorial. And the photos were a propaganda photo op where Hitler was trying to show that the British press couldn't be trusted. There's also a much less famous series of photos from that same visit where Hitler and all of his top generals had a strategy meeting right there on the front of the Canadian memorial, right on the platform behind the big Weeping Canada statue. There are photos of them gathered around maps of the battle, the ongoing battle, right? This is June 2nd, 1940. The Dunkirk evacuation is still actively happening. France is still fighting. Paris has not yet fallen. And Hitler has the maps pinned up on a board that's covering the names of the Canadian dead on the side of the memorial. And he's gesticulating at these maps, and the German generals are all looking at them. It's not clear whether this is a like a real consequential meeting or if it's just kind of a posed meeting, but they're all there. Hitler, uh, Willem Keitel, Alfred Jodl, Erwin Rommel, Gunther von Klug, Victor von Schwedler, like all of these generals who are supposed to be running this campaign on June 2nd, 1940, they're all standing on the Canadian memorial looking at maps of the ongoing battle. There's also another photo where Hitler's got the map under his arm and he's clasping Rommel's hand, looking at him with this very pleased expression and they're smiling at each other, probably talking about the recent successes. And the two pillars of the Vimy Memorial are right there, right between them. I'll post some of those pictures on the webpage for this episode. As far as I know, some of them weren't widely distributed for propaganda, just there are a few famous ones. Uh, They were all taken by Heinrich Hoffmann, Hitler's propaganda photographer. And there are also photos by Hoffmann from later in that day, June 2nd, where uh, they go to Arras and they're driving through Arras. They actually drive right through the train station plaza. So there are photos of Hitler driving right past the bombed-out ruins of the Wargraves office, which is in that plaza across from the train station. But the reason I started telling this story was that Hitler's second trip, which was later in June, was to Aubert's. That trip was a little bit more low-key. It was after the fall of Paris, and Hitler went to Aubert's with two of his old army buddies. Instead of visiting the big, famous memorials, they went to places that were significant to them and to their experience in the First World War. The farm where they stayed the pillboxes that Marcel Haler and his friends were afraid of. And there's one photo by Heinrich Hoffmann that seems to have been taken from the moving car. So I don't think they stopped and got out, but it's a picture of Aubert's Ridge Cemetery that Henry Haler took care of. And you look at it, the gate is swung wide open. The grass is starting to get a little long. It's summer. It's been a few weeks since the Haler's left. But you can still see the flowers that Henry Haler planted and that he weeded when he was down on his knees in the grass. The Haler family did not go back to Aubert's, except for a few short visits. Henry did not return to the Wargraves Commission. By 1945, the boys were older. Ernie was 18 and Marcel was 16, And it didn't seem worthwhile to go back to France. 
that was a major difference between families where the mother was French versus families where the mother was English. People who didn't have close family in France were much less likely to go back to the cemeteries after the Second World War. Henry Hiller worked at Woolwich Arsenal until 1945, but then when he left, he became a private gardener doing small gardening jobs around Hastings. So your father didn't go back to the War Graves Commission. No. Do you, did no. he ever talk about the War Graves Commission? Did he ever talk about um, how he felt about it? No. No, no he just accepted it. Mm-hmm. That's so, yeah. Just um, thought what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they would have took him back anyway. Do you know if your father or your mother was ever angry about that, about not getting the order, or were they? Well, no, because they sold him. He wouldn't get his pension. Yeah. And he never did. Yeah. Not well until after the war. And they, they had to make a case to draw his pension, mm-hmm. and he got some of it. Mm-hmm. He didn't get it all. Meanwhile, both Ernie and Marcel went into the post-war army. And even though the war was over, that didn't mean that being in the army was safe. Here's Marcel talking about what happened to Ernie when he fell ill in the army in the late 1940s. The army killed him off. Yeah. He went back to come home on leave, and he had pneumonia, and he went back to Scotland, and they put him in a missinette with pneumonia. Yeah. And left him there. Yeah. And they kept saying he hadn't reported, kept coming up to our house and saying he's deserted. Said he hasn't deserted. He's just written a letter. So they only went away and come back again, come back three times before Dad said, I'm going up. And he went up and found him in this missing up, freezing bloody gold. Called the doctor. Doctor wouldn't come. Anyway, they put him under arrest and took him down. He said he's got pneumonia. Get him to hospital. They put him in a open truck and carted him across the fields, three foot of snow, and uh, nearly killed him. Yeah, yeah. They um, he was there some time, and he never really recovered. Uh, He recovered as good as you could when after you. In them days, Mm -hmm. when you had pneumonia. Ernie survived this initial illness, but as Marcel said, he didn't really recover, and he died a couple of years later at age 25. Henry Haler, the gardener, also died around this time. In April 1952, he was in a bad motorcycle crash and broke his leg, and he died about three weeks later. Meanwhile, Marcel was serving with Remy, the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, and he was sent to Trieste in northern Italy with the Allied Peacekeeping Force stationed there between Italy and Yugoslavia. One night, Marcel was on guard duty between the lines, and the Americans started shooting. I was on guard upon a post called Number 4, in between the Yanks, Americans, 
uh, well, the bottom ones were Americans and the Yugoslavs at the top. And I was in the middle. Anyway, midnight's curfew. No, no messing about. They just, so the Yanks have gone crazy. They just bang, bang, bang. And I'm in the middle. Thinking, bloody hell. Anyway, my mate come down. He said, come down before you get killed. Anyway, I said, Christ, bloody lee. I thought a bullet had hit the concrete wall and come out and hit my leg. Anyway, I come down, went hobbling round into the guard room, got in the guard room, and they said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've just been hit by lumber concrete. So I said, I'll have a cup of tea. I went to have a cup of tea. bloke said, no, you haven't. So what do you mean? You haven't been hit by a lump of concrete, you've been hit by a bullet. Said, look at your leg. Bullet went in there and out there. Two holes in my trousers. So I quickly dropped my trousers. <laughs> There's this bloody great red line there, which is still there today. Yeah. Yeah, my national service. Got bloody shot. Marcel recovered from this minor wound and returned home to Hastings, where he got married and had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and he lived in Hastings for the rest of his life. I met him and his family in 2019 when I went to visit, and they were very hospitable and excited to share their family history. I found Marcel Haler when I was doing research in the War Graves Commission archives in Maidenhead, And I came across a letter that he had written to the commission a few years earlier saying who he was and a little bit about his story. And the commission had kept the letter, but as far as I could tell, there wasn't really very much follow-up. There wasn't further correspondence or interviews or anything like that. So I took the address off of the letter and I wrote to him. And the Haler family was very kind and gracious. In fact, I took the train down from London to Hastings to spend the day with them, and it was raining, and the tracks washed out, and all the trains back to London were canceled, so I was stuck. And they very kindly put me up overnight until the trains started running again the next morning. Uh, We sat up and, and watched They Shall Not Grow Old together. But as I said at the beginning, this was December 2019, and nobody knew what 2020 was going to bring. And as I listened to this interview a few years later, I'm struck again by the magnitude of that loss. I hope that this one little interview can preserve a piece of one story, and that sharing it is an act of remembrance. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back next time for an episode about Zoe Carone Evans, the wife of a Wargraves clerk named George Evans. Zoe was a very early member of the Cœur de Lyon Network, which was an Anglo-French resistance group in Arras. She was one of the many Wargraves women who helped save Allied evaders in Nazi-occupied France during the Second World War. This episode was written by me, Caitlin DeAngelis, with many thanks to Marcel Haler. Also to Andre and Karen Haler and their family. Sound engineering and editing by Fiona Hopkins. Music by Albert Behar and Upbeat. For sources and photographs, please visit my website, CaitlinDeAngelis.com. <laughs>